call your attention to the book of St. Matthew, the 8th chapter, the 23rd through the 27 verses. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with waves. But he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We perish. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? O ye of a little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. Faith to see us through the storms. A faith to see us through the storms. I have been very cognizant and very alert to the universal fear that is abroad in our world today. I have been reading stories in Times Magazine, in many other of the national magazines that deal with the danger of the fallout. A great many people are very anxious about building shelters for themselves to shelter them from hydrogen fallout. There have been discussions across our land as to what to do if you happen to build a bomb shelter and the word uh, is heard that a bomb has fallen, not too far to be out of danger. And of course, you rush with your family into your shelter and you find your neighbors in panic at the door to break in, to shelter themselves from that uh, danger. There have been two or three positions taken. There have been two or three views expressed. One man uh, said that um, he thought that it would be immoral to shut your neighbor out if you found him in panic at the door of your bum shelter or to reserve it exclusively for yourself without a willingness to share it with your neighbors. Another man said, well, no. If you went to the expense of building this shelter for the protection of yourself and your family, no one else has the right to invade the privacy of your bum shelter any more than they have the right to invade the privacy of your home. And if someone 
attempts to break in upon you and your family and endanger you and your family uh, to the danger of the fallout, you have as much right to shoot him as you would anybody that was trying to break in your house. Now we're not going to try to settle this controversy tonight. We're simply pointing up these views and feeling have been so strong on this issue until some people are constructing bum shelters with machine guns and boogie traps already a part of the total setup. <clears throat> now, uh, there is fear of uh, communism engulfing us, especially since it has taken over China, uh, the greatest manpower pool in the world, over 600 million people, and Poland, and Hungary, and uh, North Korea, and recently Cuba. All of this anxiety amounts to fear. I understand that uh, there are so many people that are anxious and upset for one reason or another that uh, our provisions in the state of Mem in the state of Michigan for the feeble-minded is completely inadequate. We have a long line of people waiting to get in. People have lost their minds and have become neurotic and have become anxious and upset. I want to say to you tonight, and in my saying, I want to quote the words of Jesus. Why are ye so fearful? Oh, ye of a little faith. Another uh, evangelist reported that he said, Why is your faith? Yes, now, it seems to me that in seeking retreat, Jesus embarked upon a little boat manned by his disciples. Having a heavy schedule of preaching and serving and teaching, he was tired and fatigued. And upon embarkation of that little ship, he retreated to the rear of the boat and lied down to find, you understand, resuscitation. Lied down seeking rest and recreation. For after all, as divine as he was, he was also human. He was human enough to get sad, human enough to cry, human enough to get hungry, human enough to seek the guidance of his father through the media of prayer. And so while he slept, 
the cosmic phenomena became disturbed. The clouds began to assimilate. The thunder began to roll in the distance. The lightning began to write its mysterious language upon the black bosom of the clouds while he slept. I don't believe you're praying with me. And uh, those men who were familiar with uh, the waters of the Red Sea, those men who were experienced and had been out on many occasions, felt at first adequate to the task and the challenge of piloting the boat that they were on. But uh, the wind became more severe. And the waves became overwhelming. And they uh, long discovered their inadequacy to cope with the storm in which they found themselves. And uh, it seems to me that men rarely feel the need of Jesus. Rarely feel the need of God until they find themselves face to face with the, the inevitable and face to face with a challenge that they cannot handle. But I think we ought to seek divine aid sometime before the storms rise. I believe we ought to get up some mornings when there are no pains in the body. When you can pay your rent. And when you can take care of your bill. When there's not a single trouble to roll. Across your peaceful breaths. You ought to say, Lord, I'm not asking for anything special. Just thank you for what you have been doing. I believe you ought to do that sometimes. You ought not to wait until the storms rise. You ought not to wait until you find yourself faced with a challenge that you feel is too much for you before you seek divine aid. Nevertheless, one of them went back and shook Jesus and said to him, Master, Master, Carry thou not if we perish. Master the winds are blowing in hurricane proportions. Master the waves are leaping in. Master we find ourselves incapable of piloting successfully this vessel. Master the thing has gotten out of hand. Don't you care if we perish? Danger is imminent. Danger is all around us. Master, don't you care? This isn't a peculiar experience for me. For in my life and in my experiences, I have become face to face 
with problems that seem too much for me. And I have wondered, did he care? I have wondered in the face of these problems, would he come to my rescue? I have reached out for him in faith and in prayer. And sometimes I felt that I couldn't reach it. I recognize the anguish in their cry. I recognize the frustration in their cry. I recognize the feeling of helplessness in their cry when they said, Master, don't you care if we perish? But listen, my brothers and sisters. This beachfront verbo is about to become part of an unforgettable vacation memory. The moment when so much attention to the book of Revelation, the 21st chapter and the first five verses. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. John's vision of a new world. When Domitian was the emperor of Rome, it was decreed that the entire populace of the Roman Empire was called upon to worship the god of the empire. And that god was Domitian the emperor himself. And the system of religion created around him was called emperorism. This was designed to give the people of the Roman Empire allegiance to the empire beyond and above their civic or political allegiance. This gave them a religious tie to the cause of the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans had 
policy of religious tolerance so that a people could continue to practice their native religion but also they had to adhere to imprisonment. If anyone resisted, then that person was denied the privilege to sell their goods upon the public market. They were persecuted in a number of ways. And eventually to bring them in, many of them were put to death or subjected to, subjected to other severe forms of persecution. Among those who were so persecuted was a man by the name of John who was a disciple of Christ. He represented a movement that would not bow even to the decree of the Roman Emperor. They were a sect in Judaism. They had a history somewhere that said thou shall have no other gods before me. Thou shall not bow down thyself to any graven image or anything or any of the likeness of anything in the earth on the earth or in the sea but Rome decided to break the backbone of this resistance by persecuting and putting to death the leader of this sect of people called the people of the way this was what they were called before they were called Christians, people of the way. John was accused of treason against the state and was put out on an island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos Island. And while out there, he had a vision. And that vision uh, resulted in, or at least to some extent, the book that we have today called the book of Revelation. Uh, he said that uh, while he was there, separated from his friends, separated from his followers, uh, it was necessary for him to get a letter back to them to encourage them and to sustain them through the great storm of persecution that they had to go through. He knew their trials and he knew their tribulations and he saluted them by saying, Be thou faithful unto death. And I'll give you a crown of life. Now I very often hear this particular passage misquoted. People are telling their 
covenants are giving their testimonies and they quote it, be thou faithful until death. It doesn't say that. It says, be thou faithful unto. And this unto is stronger than until. You see, because when you hear people in the church today talking about be thou faithful until death, that means that they, they are going to be messing around doing next to nothing until they haul off and die. But be thou faithful until death. Be thou faithful unto death. Means be faithful in the face of death. Be faithful in the face of danger. Be faithful no matter if you have to give up your life. Be faithful. Be faithful unto. Not until. Now John knew that he had to get this letter uh, past Roman censorship. And uh, he resorted to a style of writing that arose during what we call the intertestamental period. Called apocalyptic writing. Which really means veiled writing. Cord writing. Secret writing. We find examples of it in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Daniel, in the Apocrypha, that group of books that was taken out of the Bible. Uh, it is a highly symbolical, cryptic style of writing. People had to have background in it to understand it. The writer of the book of John knew that the Roman officials would never know what he was talking about. Because he had uh, to criticize the state. He had to criticize the Roman capital. He had to say something about the emperor. And those who had gone into allegiance with the emperor. In other words, he called uh, Rome. My name is Scott Harrison. <laughs> Just listen. This is my wife, my son, and my one on the way. I lead an organization called Charity Water, and our mission is to bring clean water to everyone on the planet. I live in New York City now, but I didn't always. He called uh, history a scroll rolled up and sealed by seven seals that nobody could break those seals but the Lamb. I don't believe you prayed with me. He called the church a woman in travail and pain. Did you hear me? He called successive era through which they had to inevitably pass. He called these eras horses. He called the first one the red horse. He called the second one the black horse. He called the third one the pale horse. 
He called the fourth and last one the white horse. I don't believe you're going to pray with me tonight. Now, by the red horse, he meant that they would have to pass through an era of war and bloodshed. And in the wake of that era, a natural sequence would fall. An era of starvation, pestilence, tribulation. And in the wake of that era, another natural sequence, an era of wholesale death, which he called the pale horse. But then he predicted for them victory and ultimately conquest which he called the white horse and its rider was Jesus I wonder you pray and then graphically he describes a long series of tribulation trial war and misery such as the world has never seen where mountains were moving where hills were running where men were calling upon hills and rocks to fall on them where the sea was boiling like a giant pot and the clouds were rolling up like scroll and the sky was cracking like glass and volcanoes were erupting. And out of this long process of misery and war, it seemed that a calmness ensued. And in the wake of this calmness, he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down from God. In other words, all of this misery, all of this war, were just the birth pains uh, in, in, in attendance to the birth of a new order, the birth of a new order. And when a new order is in the process of evolving, there's always misery, there's always war, there's always sorrow. There are always tears. As I look around upon the horizon of time and observe what's going on in this world, the misery, the war, the bloodshed that's going on in America, in Cuba, in Africa, in South Africa, all that's going on all over the world. Tell me that God is about ready to give birth to a new world order. I wonder, do you see what I'm talking about? He said, I saw new heaven. And a new earth coming down from God out of heaven. Ah, for the old heaven 
and the old line were passed away. You know, brothers and sisters, if we got a new heaven, we've got to have a new earth. Or if we get a new earth, we've got to have a new heaven. You can't, you can't have a new earth and an old heaven. Because you see, our concepts and our ideas of heaven are influenced by the world that we live in. It influences not only our thinking, it influences our terminology. Because when we speak of heaven, we got to speak of it in earthen terms. We've got to talk about rivers, lakes, gates, streets, cities, trees, flowers. These are figures of speech for earthen things. But how else could we describe heaven except in earthen terms? So that if God gives us a new eye, if God gives us a new eye, we've got to have a new heaven. I don't believe you're praying with me. Therefore, John said, when he saw this new heaven, he also had a new eye. I don't believe you're praying with me. Then he said, there was no more sea. Now to him, the sea uh, represented that thing that separated him from his church, him from his members, him from his friends and loved ones. The Aegean Sea stood between him and everything that was important. But in this new world, there were no seas of separation from friends and from loved ones. There was nothing to divide him or cut him off from all of those worthwhile and important things that were vital to his development and to his appreciation. There was no more sea. And uh, what was more, this new heaven and new earth came down from God. You know, I believe that the sociologists are doing a good job in helping us to bring about a better environment in which to live. I believe that the men of medicine are doing a great job in raising the health standards, in extending the lifespan or the life expectancy. I believe the honest politicians are doing a good job. I believe that the scientists and all of the people who are working for a better world are doing a good job. But if we will ever get a world of brotherhood, if we shall ever have a world of goodwill, a world of peace, I believe God is going to have to have something to do with it. For this man said, the world that he saw, the new order that he saw, came down from God. And then he declared that this world was God-centered. 
that God was among his people. And then he tells me here about an amazing thing. A kind of a world that's hard for us to conceive of. There were no more tears. Oh, he said, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. It's, uh, it's pretty hard for me to conceive of a world without tears. For you see, the world I live in have uh, so many things about it to make men cry. <laughs> and to bring tears to the eyes of women and well. <laughs> to bring tears to the eyes of children. <laughs> Great God. While widows who are loaded down with children. <laughs> and uh, who at the mercy of the welfare. <laughs> and at the mercy of others who will have a little sympathy for find occasion to cry. I wonder, do you see what I'm talking about? That mother who struggled, great God, while to imbue in her daughter the kind of thing, the kind of high and noble ideal, and then see that child go wrong, have occasion to cry. Oh Lord, but to her, John, tell me, in this new world, there are no more tears. There are no more tears. For God to wipe all tears away from that. God. I'm going to approach a close as I tell you this. I remember one night in Cairo, Egypt. I'd been down to the State Department of the government of Sudan. I talked for a long time with a young government official from Sudan. And as I got ready to go home, he said, I'll walk you home and I'll go along with you. Oh, Lord. And as we walked along the streets about two o'clock in the morning, in the stillness of the night, I heard a baby cry. My Lord. I said to the man, can you tell me where is that baby? And what does a baby have doing out this time of the in the morning? He pointed to an old vacant lot. And an old building standing at the edge of the lot. And there was a woman lying on the ground. With two children at her head. The woman was sleeping. Oh, Lord. And one of the babies was sleeping. Red God. But one of the babies in the chair of the morning air had a wicked alone. And felt frightened and cold in the darkness out there. And nobody put a comforting hand on Because it was cold and because it was afraid. Red God. But in this new world that John talked about, Red there'll be no tears, Lord God. There'll be no poverty, 
churches we find in Egypt today and all over India. There be no more sleeping on the ground. There be no more of the babies waking alone before day in the morning.
There may not be many of you here tonight. 